Hello, I'm Amanda Jezik, IDSA's Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Relations. Welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Emily Spivak at the University of Utah and Dr. Allison Agwu of Johns Hopkins University about health disparities during the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you both for joining us today. Let's begin with you, Dr. Agwu. Two years into the COVID-19 pandemic, how are we doing in terms of reducing the disparate impact of COVID-19 on certain populations, including Black, Indigenous, people of color, Hispanic, and Latinx populations? While we are highlighting those disparities more and more aware of them, they, they continue. Recent data from the CDC still shows that Native Americans, Alaska Natives, still have almost four times the rates of COVID hospitalizations as, as white Americans, uh, followed by black Americans who have almost two and a half times, followed by um, Latino Americans. And so we continue to see them. Uh, I I think it's important to have conversations like this where we we highlight and and talk about why we see them. But unfortunately, I don't think that we've come that far in terms of resolving those disparities. And Dr. Spivak, I know that you serve a number of rural communities. How are we doing in reducing the impact of COVID-19 on rural populations? In a general sense, we have less data and less understanding about the impacts of COVID-19 in rural America than we do actually in urban centers. And clearly the infection and the pandemic started in real more population dense urban centers, but clearly has obviously spread all throughout this country. And there really hasn't been much research to date on the impact in rural America. There's some surveys that have come out, actually led from um, some investigators here in Utah, looking at the financial impacts, the mental health impacts in these communities. Of course, they are large and in some uh, some suggestion that they may actually be larger than, than the financial and mental health impacts in more urban centers. In general, we've not done well, <laughs> you know, educating our rural communities, getting them access to testing, which has been limited all over this country, but especially in rural communities. These communities usually have limited access to healthcare in general, specifically acute medical care and, and hospital care and tertiary medical care. We're going to talk a little bit more about this, but when it comes to treatments for COVID, they are also disadvantaged. It, it's it's a there's a lot of logistical things that need to be thought through to get treatments to these patients. So they don't have access to testing to know they have COVID, which is also a gateway uh, to, to to receiving treatment for COVID. And then the last thing I'd say, specifically, if you look in Utah and then the Intermountain West, which represents a population of over 6 million people, there are really stark differences in our vaccination rates between some of our rural communities and the more urban centers. So, for instance, where I am in Salt Lake City and Salt Lake County, we have 60 to 65 percent, not great, but 60 to 65 percent of our population fully vaccinated. If you go to our more rural communities, it's around 30 percent in some places. So there are drastic differences, even within one state, a lot driven by things that are different in the rural communities that have not been addressed. Let's talk a little bit more about access to treatments. Dr. Agwu, what is your response to the recently published CDC study that found a lower use of monoclonal antibody treatments among Black, Asian, Hispanic, Latinx, and other patients with COVID-19 as compared to white and non-Hispanic patients? 
So I think you're referring to the, the study where they, with monoclonal antibodies and showing, you know, data that we need, right? So looking at how these monoclonal antibodies, which are given really when people are already have been exposed to COVID to prevent people getting sick from COVID. And when you look at the data for what, in terms of access of those, and what we saw was that the same sort of issues played out despite having those higher rates of hospitalization and COVID disease that African-Americans and Latinos were less likely to have received uh, monoclonal antibodies. And so then, you know, some of what the study tried to do was to figure out why that was and to, to hypothesize without necessarily having all that survey data to, to say why and speculated that it had to do with, you know, some hesitancy, had to do with how potentially access in terms of how their providers provided them, et cetera, um, and just even... Uh, medical care or insurance uh, or just knowledge. And though those reasons were not specifically studied in the study, they were speculated. And I think a lot of, when we look at disparities, and I I love how Emily outlined all the disparities in the rural communities, I I live and work in Baltimore, and really do think on the urban lens. But even in urban settings, there are pockets of patients and demographics where vaccination, uh, hospitalizations, everything are different, that it's important to look at the data. If we don't look, we won't get it. And so I I think as we we process as to why we see that, it's critically important to first get the data to say that we are seeing differences and then unpack why those differences exist from a systems level all the way down to individual, you know, personal level in order for us to be able to reverse that. Interestingly, that same study showed once individuals got to the hospital, actually, the disparities were not as stark in terms of what they were treated with in the hospitals. They were actually African-Americans are more likely to get remdesivir or steroids or what have you. So some of the the differences we see do have to do with how people get in the door and whether or not they get in the door for monoclonals. Hello, my name is Dr. Mati Flachwayo-Davis. I'm the associate editor for the COVID Health Equity Resources section of the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. The COVID Health Equity Resources section offers a collection of educational and training materials, research articles, and resources that are curated to help medical professionals and institutions provide equitable COVID-19 care. Check us out at idsociety.org forward slash COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network forward slash COVID health equity resources. Continuing on this topic of access to COVID treatments, Dr. Spivak, what role have antimicrobial stewardship programs played in administering COVID-19 therapeutics? And what are some of the biggest challenges that stewardship leaders have been facing in this area? This has been an awesome time in some ways for stewardship (laughs) programs, but an also really overwhelming time. So speaking specifically for our stewardship program here, and and I think it's reflective of many around the country, you know, it started again two years ago with us really focusing on developing some guidance around treatments that were out on social media. We had no evidence whether they worked or not and providing some guidance around treating patients in the hospital with COVID-19. And clearly those have evolved many, many, many times over the last two years. A lot of stewardship programs played roles in providing that guidance and actually being the most up-to-date on this really rapid evolving literature around what may or may not work for treatment of inpatients. And many of us were also involved in clinical trials, which also kept us up-to-date and really had a finger on the pulse. And I will say It was very interesting to me, you know, a backbone of stewardship programs in many hospitals is restricting antimicrobials, which is often kind of a fight and not really viewed very positively by prescribers. 
this was like a fascinating experience because there was zero pushback on restricting any of these therapies. And actually people were like, well, you know, we don't know, just tell us how, you know, you're, you know, about these new drugs. We don't know anything, please educate us. And it was just really interesting in an emergency pandemic situation with new, a lot of new data coming out every day and new treatments that were novel, people needed our expertise. We were even restricting and stewarding things like convalescent plasma, monoclonal antibodies, all those sorts of things. In the last, I guess it's a little over a year now, we still you know, oversee and update inpatient treatment, but a lot of it switched to the outpatient side. And I think that's true again for stewardship programs around the country. Some do it differently. In Utah, we have a state group that I am part of uh, as a subject matter expert that advises our state leaders in our Department of Health, essentially on how we are going to allocate, so where the drugs are going to be shipped around the state that are coming from HHS for outpatient treatment of COVID. And then we also provide guidance on how to prioritize or pick the patients who are eligible to receive the treatments. And so I've played that role. And I think there's other clearly around the country have led that state leadership role that then also translates to me overseeing what our operation for the University of Utah as well. The challenges have been lack of drug, but I'd say more than lack of drug off and on has been human resources to actually distribute these medications in a lot of ways, because, you know, for a long time, it was just monoclonal antibodies up until a week or two or a month or two ago, which requires an infusion. And we, you know, it's logistically difficult to find one, a space where you can bring a COVID-19 positive patient and give an infusion and not infect other people, but also just keeping a nursing staff that can do that. And so that has required a lot of people shuffling schedules over the last year and almost year and a half now. But in a lot of ways, that challenge of drug shortage, people resource shortage and figuring it out has really created, I think, opportunities for ID, for me to show the value of ID, the value of a, of a stewardship leader, and how we can navigate all those different uh, pieces and stakeholders in an institution and honestly within a state to try and figure out how to how to help our community with this. And so it has really highlighted, I think, our value. You know, it's it's so interesting. So in, in your lens, you know, in the rural lens, it's really the same things we're seeing here in Baltimore. It's it's how do you make sure I mean ID has been as a specialty is one where, you know, we kind of go up and down where we have people who are interested in ID and then people who are not interested in ID for years. And how do you get people interested? And then this is contagion on steroids, right? So all of a sudden everybody is now an ID expert and but it, it, it has been an opportunity for you to as a, as a specialty, um, and I really give, give hats off to Emily and the other antimicrobial stewardship folks with evolving data where almost on a daily basis, one, this drug is in and now it's out, and, and, and guiding that and figuring out how to truly steward people in a way to, to make sure people get what they need um, and, and all the players and not just the big academic institutions, but thinking about where all the, the drug needs to be um, to assure that there's access to address some of the disparities that we were talking about at the beginning. And a lot of it's challenging. It's logistics. And I think the legacy of COVID really is going to be having uncovered some of the Swiss cheese where our systems can go awry and aligning them in a way or disaligning them so we don't have those, those systems go awry. And hopefully COVID will teach us how to better deliver care for hopefully not, but future pandemics, but just to operate better, more efficiently. 
I'd like to hear both of you talk a bit more about issues surrounding outpatient treatment. So we do now have new antiviral drugs for outpatient therapy, but they are very much in short supply. So what recommendations do each of you have for guiding optimal prescribing in the outpatient setting and mitigating disparities in access to these important new treatment options? The strategies vary a little bit from drug to drug, but in a general sense, I think ideally in a pandemic situation, having some coordinated effort across the state, I just can't speak to it enough how awesome it has been in this state that we had all the major health systems, the rural hospitals represented, we had ethicists, we had crisis standards from the you know state level represented in our Department of Health, and we really have evolved and, and continued to change how we are delivering these treatments. But we tried from the beginning, honestly, to think about distribution to rural settings to really access all of these different populations. But we also be, were very concerned at the beginning. And I have to say, I think a lot of it came from a JAMA editorial from Rochelle Walensky about monoclonal antibodies and the potential for them to introduce disparities that at our state group, we started thinking about this at the beginning. And we used internal Utah's, our own data to look at what are predictors of hospitalization and death from COVID-19. And none of it is surprising, but it's, you know, the clearly comorbidities, but we actually looked at self-described or self-identified race and ethnicity independently from other comorbidities or health statuses and also gender and found a really, really significant higher risk in our non-white identified race or ethnicities compared to, our, to our, our white populations. And for a year, we have used a state risk score, essentially weighting all the different factors that we found statistically predictive of hospitalization and male gender uh, was more predictive for the first year as men were getting hospitalized more than women. And none of these were automatic triggers to get therapy, but we tried to prioritize or really target therapies to patients who had higher risk and race ethnicity was one piece. And so it would get you more points on our state risk score, which we had different triggers to get treatment. On top of that, we have within our larger health systems that had the ability to do this have been doing outreach. So we have mechanisms where in our, our test results, if a patient meets criteria by our state risk score, which we can calculate, their test result tells them you're high risk for severe bad outcomes. You may be eligible for a treatment. Please call this number. And also our health system in Intermountain, the two biggest ones here, have also been literally going out and grabbing people. So we call people who are on our list and on our registry who meet criteria and specifically from these communities to call them and offer them treatment. With the oral drugs, it's a little bit different and a little bit harder. We, as a state level, have focused a lot on trying to put those medications also in community health centers, partnering with different clinics that primarily see patients or are embedded in these, in these communities of color or, or different rural communities who have and may have other health disparities, and trying to partner that way to really educate those providers and also put the treatments. We, we've really just looked you know, around the state and tried to put the treatments where we think not only the highest rates of disease are, but where the populations are who also are at risk of poor outcomes. So it's been you know, a shuffling logistical puzzle. And as of, a, gosh, now two weeks ago, we've actually, um, the state of Utah has been challenged legally by some conservative think tanks who are challenging our 
prioritization of non-white racial and ethnic groups. And so we have been forced, essentially, to pull that criteria out of our risk score. We were doing it for a year, over a year, which I'm proud of, but we recently had to pull it out because it wasn't just us. I think Minnesota, New York, there are other, there are other states that have faced these legal challenges, but that's just another thing that has made it extra complicated. But I think people need to look at their data to Allison's point earlier. And, you know, we looked at it just to show, you know, we rerun the data. And even again, the, the risk is even higher than it was a year ago to show you know, this is our data. This is what's happening. We really need to focus on these communities. I uh, have not been as involved in the distribution, et cetera, as, as Emily is in the planning. And it's great to hear about that. I, as a provider, I can speak more on that lens. I have yet to be able to secure Paxlovid for, for a patient. And despite taking care of a high-risk population, the patients that I've sent, or the prescription to the pharmacy or tried to get it, have yet to be able to get it. And again, high-risk, immunocompromised, inner city, black, right, and not being able to get it with the risk for disease. And so I, I think certainly it's, it's sad to hear that we're challenging or there's challenges to true risk factors, right, and having that, you know, come out of the risk score because it, you know, certainly we, every data set you look at, those things fall out as risk factors. And so, and they overlay the risk factors for diabetes and hypertension and, and obesity. So it it's really is, if you have one of those overlay maps, it's one over the other over the other. And, and we can talk about the source of all of that to begin with, right, how we get there. But to try to, to, to then make race and ethnicity part of the risk score, it's, it's unfortunate that comes out. But that being said, I think, you know, the, the, the beauty of what you're describing is the intentionality of saying, we're going to actually look at what the risk is, actually look at our data, and then design systems and interventions that help that. I think some places like New York have done, let's do, give people a, a gift card to get, to come in and, 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 and get their, their COVID vaccine, for example, or let's do things, transportation, things to help mitigate those social determinants that often sometimes can impact whether or not you go in for vaccination, but they also may impact whether you go in for treatment, right? So if you can't get there, so let's make it easy. And another point that I think you made that was so critical is that we're assuming that all providers are following all the criteria and the guidelines and know when their patient comes back positive that they qualify. So that messaging is not just for the patient, it's actually for the provider themselves as well to make sure they understand that person at high risk and may benefit from a treatment and perhaps can get it in these places. So really critical to really, again, get all the safety nets so people don't fall through the cracks. To your last point, Allison, at least within our system at the university, we knew our providers, this was just like evolving so rapidly, we knew they could not keep up to date, one, on the new treatments, on who's eligible, how that was changing over time, but also their patients are getting tested at urgent cares, at drive-through clinics. They didn't even know within a timely fashion when their patients were positive for COVID. So you have to think a little bit different about, it's not a traditional medical paradigm where patient comes into the clinic, is diagnosed with COVID, and then you give them a prescription. And so that's why we, we added on this outreach piece. We, again, we had the technical, you know, the IT expertise to be able to do this, but to have a whole call system of nurses who were screening our positive patients every day and prioritizing outreaching to them because their doctors didn't even know that they had COVID yet. 
And another piece that you said that's so critical, because when you talk about disparities in social determinants, for example, there, there are disparities in broadband access, for example, that if you're sending a message through the electronic medical record, that patient may never get it. And so the fact that somebody picked up the phone, hoping they have a phone, and is calling, trying to figure out ways to then get around those disparities to then get them the, the treatment. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim Hansen. Advance the career of your colleagues by encouraging them to apply to become a fellow of IDSA. Visit idsociety.org forward slash FIDSA. Dr. Spivak, looking ahead, how can we better equip our healthcare professionals and our health systems to support optimal, equitable administration of therapeutics in a future public health emergency? One, let's not reinvent the wheel. We need to use data. I think we have a lot of data. We need more, but from this pandemic that I think a lot of people were probably like, duh, we already knew that all of this was a problem. We don't know why necessarily. Again, it's different in different communities. The disparities are the way that they are, but I think we need to go and then with the, with the next emergency, really assume these disparities are there, set up mechanisms ahead of time to start to collect data, to understand the impacts in, in disease acquisition and, and outcomes. Also, in some ways, again, don't wait for that data. Let's go ahead with the next emergency and really learn from maybe things that did or did not work operationally this time to, to, to deliver therapies when they arise. I also think, you know, I don't think we necessarily need every state doing the same thing because we're all very different. But I do think some sort of playbook or guidance would be helpful the next time. I mean, you know, it it can be informed for sure and should be from what did and didn't work this time. The distribution of drug has been fairly good. To my knowledge, how much drug drug went to each state has probably been determined, I assume, based on case counts. I think maybe we could be a little bit more elegant in that next time and think about social determinants of health and actually these different groups and states that may have larger populations that are at a higher risk for poor outcomes and maybe have larger groups that are of minority or, pay, or populations that are going to be, we know there's going to be disparities. Let's give more drug to these populations that we know, you know, base it not just on the case counts, but on the density essentially of communities that you really need to access who are at much higher risk for poor outcome. But also then, you know, some sort of a playbook or guidance about distribution, where to allocate it within a state, how to think about to guide prescribing parameters or clinical guidance around using it, but then prioritization and also operational pieces to get around some of these barriers to accessing care that we've talked about. I think all of those pieces would be really, really helpful. And I think everyone's been sort of scrambling to figure it out on their own, but there is a ton to be learned, I think, from what did and didn't work this go around. Dr. Agwu, what role can healthcare providers play in reducing COVID-19-related health disparities with their patients and more broadly in their communities? And what about health systems and community hospitals? What sorts of policies and programs can they implement and support to really help improve health equity in their communities? 
conversations like this are, are really important and you know should be part of education, medical school, nursing school, et cetera, so we understand that they that they exist and nobody's debating that health disparities exist. I think as a provider, and I happen to be an African-American female provider, and so my sensitivity may be a little bit greater to these issues, but I think it doesn't matter what, what your, your race ethnicity or how you classify yourself. We all, as we are providers providing care for patients, need to really not separate the patient from their context and then be intentional about that. And what I mean by that is is ask questions, not to assume. Ask and know about the historical perspective of the area you live in. I, I live in Baltimore, as I said, or work in Baltimore. And there's a whole slew of stories, right? Henrietta Lacks and other stories that inform how the community may interface with new therapies, et cetera, and may impact those disparities. And so understanding what may be, not assuming that the patient in front of me has those concerns, but understanding that they may exist and may inform how the interface with the community and with the medical system may be. Being proactive and not really being hierarchical and really providing information, but being willing to hear information, including thoughts and feelings about the medicines and the therapies, et cetera, which then when we're having a dialogue and people feel heard, then they're more likely to then agree or if they disagree, may come around later. But I think when you truly meet people where they are and they feel heard, then I think we can move beyond. I think being proactive again, and before we get there, right? So proactive, you know, we happen to be talking about COVID, but I already said this is overlaid on many other health inequities that exist. We can talk about, you know, there are, are inequities in terms of where parks are or where places people could exercise or grocery stores. These things all contribute to whether people get their diabetes or their hypertension and increase their risk of COVID, et cetera. And so how do we as providers be more involved beyond writing the prescriptions for those ailments in our offices and be more involved in policy or, or advocacy for the communities that we take care of so we reduce what they're coming in with the end. Amplifying the voices of a diverse workforce, it's really critical. And when I say diverse, I, I'm talking about race, ethnicity, but I also am talking about who is involved in decision-making, who's at the table. Nurses, social work, really thinking more broadly about that workforce, but definitely having a diverse workforce, not just when you have something that is impacting racial ethnic minorities higher, but all the time. So they're used to those voices and have trusted voices that look like them or, or, or hear them. And I think it's constant messaging. We've talked about different aspects of the healthcare system that we need to align, et cetera, this doesn't go away when COVID hopefully goes away. This actually should have us double down on amplifying, supporting the things that we know we need to be doing, social determinants, making sure people can have those barriers reduced so they can engage in care reliably, again, with or without COVID. So I think as a provider, those are the things that occupy my mind. You know, we talk a lot about HIV, but I, I mean, in COVID, but I'm an HIV provider, and these things before COVID, they are what makes HIV challenging to impact. The same health disparities and the same social determinants we see with HIV. So it's taking lessons and not siloing them in one condition or another, but saying, how does this apply to all of these things, and how can we get together to, to, to think about it differently and better? And from a health system, I think it's, it's the provider and amp that up. It's, it's how do we help providers to address those things on a system level so we can impact our patients overall.
I'd be remiss for not mentioning that we do need to invest in ID specialists, whether it's for, for treating physicians or antimicrobial stewardship. Over as a specialty, we've seen a decline in terms of match rates, et cetera, over the past several years, and hopefully a little bit of a change in that tide with the COVID pandemic, et cetera. But the reality is our workforce is diminished, and we saw people really pulled in so many different directions, and we're not able to have the workforce we needed to address the pandemic. And so I think if anything is a as a consequence of, of, of this, that we hopefully have more investment into the ID specialty, whether it's payment of those individuals, more investment in antimicrobial stewardship. Really, I, I think we have seen how critical our specialty is to not just pandemics, but understanding all the things that we need to have our, our patients be healthier and working in conjunction with the health systems to improve outcomes. They're really important thing that we can do as a, a system and as a country to hopefully address the disparities with COVID and beyond. At this time, I'd like to thank Dr. Spivak and Agwu for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, please visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Amanda Jezik. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast.